web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome your questions here today. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, uh, as Rick already gave those numbers, the number locally is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number. We broadcast here at WAGP 88.7 FM through the Internet around the world 24-7, and people live stream us or listen to us through the phone apps. Uh, and if you would like to use our toll-free number, it's 877-WAGP, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or if you are more comfortable, you can simply uh, contact us via email, and your email will shoot in right here into the studio. It's TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be back here today at the table, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, we've got a number of callers on the line right now, and uh, we'll see if they're going to leave a message or whether they're going to go live. But in the meantime, we'll go to our mailbag where Marie from Arnoldsville, Arnoldsville, Georgia writes, I don't understand the Trinity, God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Am I to understand the Trinity is three in one or rather the three working as one? Did Jesus, well, we'll get to that in just a second. We always give preference to live callers and we've got one standing by right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Yes, I have a question. In Matthew sixteen twenty four. When Jesus says, pick up your cross, what is your cross? And then another question is, who do you think has the best book that explains the Sermon on the Mount? Those are great questions. Uh, Let me go ahead and deal with your uh, Matthew question first. Uh, Jesus says here, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it profit? What will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will recompense Uh, every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of you. And then he goes on and speaks about a coming day. So let me um, deal with the cross. You know, people have defined the cross in a number of different ways over the years. Some say, well, my cross is my cross husband that I have to deal with. That's not your cross. Or or my cross is this backache that I have or some physical ailment. No, the cross in the New Testament is always a symbol of persecution. And it's a denial of self, something about a crucified man. He's, he has no further choices of his own. He, he's facing in one direction and there's no turning back. And that's certainly true of the believer. And the Lord is using this in reference to salvation. There's a decision we have to make who will be the Lord of our life, whether we want to run our own life 
and do our own thing and be our own person or whether we are willing to admit our problem that we are rebels and sinners by nature and rebellious at heart and to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. He's not teaching a works righteousness, but he is reminding us that unless there's a real uh, absolute uh, facing off with the sin issue, the rebelliousness that is inbred in all of our hearts and sin did my mother conceive me, King David wrote in Psalm 51, 5, and in Luke's gospel, when Jesus describes the problem of the human heart, it's a problem of rebellion where we say, in essence, we don't want this man to reign over us. And that is at the heart of all sin. The, the, the cause of sins, plural, is sin singular. And sin singular is I want to be the boss, the king, the Lord of my own life. And so when you come to Christ, it's really impossible to say, well, I'm coming to him to get forgiveness, but not for him to change my life. Uh, That's impossible because if you're really calling sin, sin, then you're willing to acknowledge that it's evil, it's wrong, and I need God really to truly forgive it and to change it. Um, In reference to your question on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there are many good commentaries that have been written on Matthew's gospel, and that's probably where I would begin. Uh, As a good overview commentary of Matthew, you might want to purchase the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the BKC. Uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary was done by Dallas Seminary in the early 1980s. And there was a number of different contributors to each book of the Bible. Some of those people wrote entire books uh, in volumes on a single gospel or an epistle or a letter or an Old Testament book. Um, And the summary and the highlight of what they wrote was put into the BKC, which is a two-volume commentary on the Bible. And unlike most general commentaries on the Bible, uh, they don't address the obvious. They, They deal with the more interesting, more difficult, more challenging issues. And the person who did Matthew's gospel does that well when it relates to the Sermon on the Mount. The great thing about the BKC, though, is it's a good starting place in that at the end of each book that is addressed, and the general editors were um, Dr. Zook and Dr. Walverd now, both who are in heaven, Dr. Zook more recently in the last few months, But um, what they do at the end of each book of the Bibles, so if you came to the end of Matthew's gospel, they will have a bibliography of conservative works that are done. And so you'll see about 20 different commentaries on the gospel according to to Matthew. And those are all going to be good conservative works that I think you'll find helpful as you read and study Uh, Matthew's gospel, especially the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount, unfortunately, is often isolated from the rest of Matthew because there are so many commentaries that are done just on the Sermon on the Mount, which without a doubt is the greatest sermon ever preached that the Lord himself gave. But to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it has to be understood in the broader context of Matthew's gospel. That's why I'm reluctant to say, well, here's a commentary just on the Sermon on the Mount because there are so many of them that miss the broader flow of this gospel that is written largely to Jewish people. And the theme and summary and the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, summarized in a, in a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So the sermon kind of has a dual approach. Number one, it, it is written to shatter the human righteousness that people are often comfortable with that is not acceptable to the Lord. Uh, and so Jesus takes the pharisaical righteousness of the day and he brings it much higher. Oh, you say you should not commit adultery, but I say, um, if you even look and lust at a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So Jesus really shatters their external righteousness and goes right to the human heart to help them to see which foundation they are really building on a foundation of sand or a foundation that is built on the rock. But it, of course, it has direct application for God's people because there's principles that run all the way through it as to how we as kingdom people are to live our lives before the Lord. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, we've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. Yeah, good morning. This is, it's, it's kind of a statement more so than a, a question. I mean, I received a, an email last evening from someone associated with our mob, our uh, prayer line in church, and it was regarding a missionary that was in Iraq in a town that had just been overrun by ISIS, mm-hmm. and they were going door to door asking the children if they had received Jesus. If they had, would they denounce him? And when they refused, they murdered them in front of their parents, and they were systematically going door to door doing this. The mission, the person who was there in the mission field was asking for prayers because they were very, very concerned. Um, Number one, that's just the most horrible thing I I can imagine, murdering a child. Such young martyrs for Christ. And I'm just, in my heart, Pastor Brogy, I I know, and you've said it, that we're in the last days. And I, I believe that firmly. And it also leads me to believe just what you teach every Sunday at church, that we as Christians have to be much more diligent now trying to win souls to Christ since we are in this in these times. And I, I just wanted to, to get your feelings on that. Well, the persecution that's going on in Iraq and countries all over the world is not diminishing. It's only increasing And uh, certainly the example that you highlight is one of many examples. Uh, Franklin Graham in his Decision Magazine with Billy Graham this month highlights some of the persecution that's going on in places like Egypt and Iraq and Iran and um, Syria, where largely it's represented by the Coptic Church. And some of them are truly genuine born-again Christians. Some are just nominal Christians, but any type of association with Christianity in any respect is being crushed and uh, persecuted. And so most of the Christians in those countries have fled. You know, they've basically been said, pay a tax, uh, convert or die. And of course, some of them initially stayed and they tried to pay the tax. And then after they paid the tax, they still killed them. And so word was out on the street, so to speak. And so most of them have fled. Some of the older elderly people who are unable to make that kind of move, have lost their lives, and some have, quote-unquote, converted because they were only nominal Christians. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out from us indicates that they were not really of us. But it is a mark and a sign of the brutality of the last days when uh, Paul writes to Timothy 
his protege in the faith, he, he gives some very pointed statements. He said, in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. And then the next in the list is brutal. There's a brutality that will accompany the last of the last days. And we're seeing that marked off. I remember in a discussion approximately 40 years ago um, where we were discussing this issue of people being beheaded uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation period. In that time frame, people will either convert to Antichrist or they will uh, supernaturally be protected or they will be martyrs. And so in the Revelation, you see this great number of people who had died by beheading. And it seemed rather abstract that there would be beheading that would go on. It seemed so brutal. But now we're, you know, seeing people who are willing to exercise and to carry this kind of uh, brutality out. And it is a mark of the last days. So, you know, you pray for the church and you pray for your own nation. One of the reasons we are to pray for leaders who are in authority over us is that it might be peaceable with us. And what's the purpose of having this kind of peace that Paul admonishes uh, those that are under Timothy's care? Why would they want that peace? Because they might have freedom to share the gospel because God is desiring that you know, none should perish, but that all come to salvation. Or there in First Timothy 2.5, uh, God's desire or wish is that all men come to a knowledge of the truth. So we need to pray for the church and we need to pray for our own nation because uh, God promises to hear the prayers of his people. And when you take all the air out of the balloon and you look at a country like our own and those who really know Christ, those are the people who have power with God, who are able to influence the king's heart and to do what is right. And and I'm glad our president uh, stepped up to the plate and I commend him for the decision that he has made because he's dealing, in essence, with ruthless Canaanite-type people that Moses was told of when the people of Israel would go into the Promised Land. And a a brutality that is beyond imagination, where they would kill their own children. God said, exterminate them. Exterminate them. Um, And that's really what needs to be done with uh, ISIS. And that may seem cruel and unchristian, but it's not because God is down on life. He's up on life. And it needs to be dealt with in a decisive way. And if we don't, well, we're going to have uh, only greater problems to come in the days ahead. Evil has to be confronted. um, And this evil has to be confronted in the day that we live in. So we need to pray for our military. We need to pray for our president and even those other nations that are going against uh, this force of evil called ISIS. Or now I think they're calling themselves just IS, the Islamic State. Anyway, good question and comment. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Let's go back to that question that we had earlier that we began. Our listener does not understand the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They write, am I to understand the Trinity is three in one or rather the three working as one? Did Jesus look up to himself on, a, on the cross? Did the Father look down on himself and say he's well pleased? The Bible states Jesus was on earth to do the will of the Father and to make his name known. Then why are we mostly singing praises to Jesus in church? I am a believer, but a bit confused, and I need to understand. Well, Marie from Arnoldsville, Georgia, let me see if I can respond to your question. 
Um, as believers, as Christians, we do not believe in three gods. We, we worship one God. The Shema is just as true under the New Covenant as it was under the Old Covenant. Shema is the Hebrew word, of course, for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And the New Testament affirms the oneness of God. Even the demons, James will write, believe that God is one. So we are not polytheistic, we are monotheistic, but God has revealed himself as existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And the members of the Trinity cannot really be separated. You say, are they three or one, or are they three working in one? Well, they're both. Uh, Those are not mutually exclusive terms. God exists three persons in one God. Um, and the three persons work together inseparably. And so almost any ministry you can look at in the New Testament, there is a co-working that goes on. Why? Because you can't dissect God. Even this last Sunday, we were looking at the subject of spiritual gifts. And most Christians, if you ask them today, well, you know, who gives spiritual gifts? Most people would immediately say, well, the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true, but it's not exclusively his ministry. In Romans 12 and verse 3, God the Father is credited with giving spiritual gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, God the Son is credited with ascending on high and giving gifts to men. He's the one who is said to give give spiritual gifts. Certainly in Corinthians, the work of the Holy Spirit is highlighted as the giver of spiritual gifts. So who gives spiritual gifts? Every member of the Trinity. Who created the world? Well, God the Father. Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning created God, a reference to the Father, uh, the heavens and the earth. Um, and yet uh, the Spirit is the one who is overshadowing uh, the creation of God in Genesis 1 and verse 2 and um, is bringing order into the creation. In the Son, all things were created through him. So who created the world? God did. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, what might be helpful to you would be a good study on the um, doctrine of the Trinity. And to help you in that, I've done a series called Back to Basics. And back to basics, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can download any of the messages either on your computer or to your Search the Scriptures phone app. More people, I think, are using the phone app now than ever because it's just so convenient. You're on the road, you're out running, jogging, walking, and you can listen to messages. And the Back to Basics series is our discovery class at Community Bible Church. It's not all up there, but... Um, 11 of the 20 handouts have now been uh, reproduced and available to people along with the messages that they can either stream on uh, a video clip or they can listen to it on an audio clip, either way. But one of the messages deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Charles Fuller, uh, the founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, that when it was founded was a conservative Bible-believing school. Unfortunately, it has drifted in our day. But um, he said it so well. He said, if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try to figure it out, you'll lose your mind. So I take it by faith. Do I fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity? No, but there's much I can understand. And I think it would be very helpful for you to listen to that message in the Back to Basics series on the doctrine of the Trinity. So go to searchthescriptures.org. You can, live, you can uh, 
stream it on video or you can download it in your computer, an audio file, or in your phone app, however it's most useful to you. Good question. Let's go to the next. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Email us at tbl at net. And if you'd like to listen to this program again, you can go to our website at wagp.net where you can uh, go ahead and go to our archives and listen to this or any of the previous Bible line uh, programs. Our next caller would like you to explain the gap theory between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and also referred to in 2 Peter 3 verses 5 to 7. Well, um, it, it's not referred to in the Bible. The gap theory is really a man-made kind of created thing. Uh, but some people wanting to breathe science into the Bible to make them coexist, uh, the, the latest science, I should say, have created what's called the gap theory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So some have argued that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3, there is a a gap of time. But what Genesis 1-2 is just describing is the world was unformed, it was unfilled, and God had to form it, and God had to fill it. And that's reaffirmed in Isaiah forty-five eighteen, which in many ways serves as commentary uh, on even this text of Scripture. So what he's unfolding, beginning from verse 2, is how God fills and forms the earth step by step by step by step by step. But what people are trying to do in our day is they will say, well, um, you know, the earth we're told by science is billions of years old. So we have to come up with billions of years. And so they do it in a number of different ways. They put gaps between the days. They say, well, the days of creation are 24 hour days, but between each day, there's long periods of time, or they make the days of creation very long days. And they reference the text that you have quoted here from Second Peter that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's not giving the length of a day. He's using an idiom there to describe that God's timetable is not our timetable. But that does not mean a day is not a day, that a day is not 24 hours. And so he's not dealing uh, with the days of creation in the Second Peter passage. In fact, the Hebrew word yom is used in different ways in the Bible, and context is everything, but no one just reading Genesis 1 and 2 would come up with long days. Uh, That was invented in the last century for people to try to dovetail evolution, which was acceptable in most people's minds, with that of the Bible. And they've come up with all kinds of different theories. The essence and the problem with evolution is, that Christians try to embrace and say that they're biblical and they say, well, you know, we can't deny evolution. God just used the process of of evolution to create the world. And so theistic evolution, that God used evolution to bring about his creation is you have death before the fall. And the Bible is crystal clear 
that death comes after the fall. There is no death until sin enters into the world. And when sin enters into the world, death with it, as Paul reminds us in Romans 5. So there are no gaps between the days. And so when you see this word yom, sometimes it's used in a broad sense to an extended period of time. Uh, We even do that in English today. We speak of the day of his youth. We are not saying that a man was a youth for one 24-hour day. We're talking about that prolonged period of time that we refer to the day of his youth. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day in the Bible. It mimics a biblical day, but it's not a 24-hour day. It's a long, protracted period of time that mimics a biblical day that starts with sundown and finishes with sundown. The day of the Lord is that period of time that gets increasingly dark in the great tribulation. Then the sun, the S-O-N, comes back, and he is likened to the S-U-N in the book of Malachi. And uh, a time of great brightness and righteousness for a thousand years will Uh, take place and unfold on the earth. And at the end of the day of the Lord, it gets dark again, where the devil who had been bound for a thousand years is loosed. And the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren or however many great-grands people could have over the course of a thousand years when the uh, curse is lifted off of creation and those who survive the tribulation enter into the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. Like today, I'm a redeemed person, but I am not in my final body. My salvation is not complete. I'm still looking for my resurrected body. But the tribulation saints who are converted during the great tribulation will enter into the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies and be able to procreate. We won't because we will have already been caught up and raptured. And so at the end of that thousand years, some uh, will rebel against God's Messiah upon the earth, and there will be a time of darkness. So the day of the Lord mimics a biblical day, darkness to darkness with light in between. Um, But whenever the word, the Hebrew word yom is associated with either the phrase in there was morning, there was evening and morning a second day. It always is in reference to a 24-hour day. In without exception, over 400 times in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew word yom is accompanied with a number, like three yom or five yom or ten yom, it's in reference to a 24-hour day. And the other 400 plus occasions in the Old Testament, no one debates when there's the Hebrew word yom with a number that it's referring to a literal 24-hour day. Not even the liberal theologians, but somehow because we want to make science fit into the Bible, we dispute it in Genesis. And so we come up with a gap either between Genesis 1-1 and 1-3. Or we say the days of creation or long days of creation, or there are gaps of time between the 24-hour days of creation. But God created the world in six 24-hour days, and he gives us divine commentary on that, lest we think otherwise. So when Moses gives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and he gives the Fourth Commandment, which is to honor the Sabbath day. He said, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
in it you shall not do any work. And then he gives the reason in verse 11 of Exodus 20, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Moses, when he looks back on the days of creation, he compares them to a typical work week. You work six, you rest one. And so he compares the days of creation to an actual week. And that's not by accident. Um, so Moses understood the days of creation to be six 24 hour days. Why do people want to make the creation millions or billions of years old? Because they want to dismiss God from your mindset. They want to convince you that this has been going on for billions of years and it will continue to go on for billions of years. And therefore there's no real accountability to God. But if the creation of the world is less than 10,000 years old, if God created the world with the appearance of age, Adam and Eve were adults when they were created. The trees in the garden were not saplings. They were full fruit-bearing trees. God created the world with the appearance of age. And the fossil record can easily be explained through the great flood. In either case, um, this creation, I believe, is less than 10,000 years old, and the devil wants to erase that from your mind because he doesn't want people to think that there's any accountability to God. And so men professing to be wise, they become fools, they exchange the truth of God, and they believe a lie, and that's the essence of evolution. Uh, you might want to go and listen to my um, sermons on Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And you can go to searchthescriptures.org. Again, you can download them, get the phone app, listen to them. I go through all these issues. I spend hours just on the first two chapters teaching our way verse by verse through those chapters. Deal with the text, the issues that you've raised, Second Peter 3. Walk through it all and other passages that maybe you've not thought of, but you will probably be confronted with at some point, and I think it would be really useful to you. Good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. You answered the next one by and large, but uh, maybe you'd like to add. They ask, are... Um would, uh, let's see, they believe in an omnipotent God, but then, um, or actually he says some people say they believe in an omnipotent God, but then doubt that God could create the earth and uh, uh, exactly how and when he says he did. Well, you know, um, we get the concept of a year, not just from the Bible, but from, from science. Um, and people use either a lunar calendar or a solar calendar or a combination lunar slash solar calendar. But the basic concept of a year, you can discern even from science or from lunar rotations. And so the Earth takes 365 days and a quarter thereabouts to go around the, the planet Earth. Um, the concept of a day you can get from science. Uh, it takes approximately 24 hours for the Earth to make a complete rotation on the Earth's axis. But the concept of a week is found only in the Bible. Where does the concept of a week come, that a week is seven days long? Who invented that? God invented that. God gave us that time frame in the way in which he unfolded the world. Six days he created the world, and on the seventh day he rested. On the Sabbath, on Saturday, he rested. And so the concept of a week comes from God. Listen, God did that for a reason. 
because he was teaching a very important truth, which I walk through in our Genesis series, especially in the second chapter. And we talk about the meaning and the significance of the Sabbath and even the future meaning of the Sabbath during the millennial reign of Christ when we will celebrate the Sabbath once again. Um, but God could have uh, created the world not in six days. He could have done it in six seconds or he could have done it in no time at all. In fact, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, he's not going to do it in six days. He's going to do it in a second and a split. He's just going to speak it into existence and it will be done. And so again, the, the problem with the Christian who needs millions of years for the creation to take place, you know, you're right. They have a less than sovereign view of God and they, and they've really depreciated God's omnipotency that he is an all powerful God. And how do they deal with the fact that in a split second, not over the course of evolution, that God will give us new resurrected bodies? And how do they deal with the fact that God will create a new heaven and a new earth in a split second? So there's a reason God did it the way he did. And that's what most people, most Christians don't understand because they're untaught today in the scriptures. Pastors are no longer opening the Bible and teaching them verse by verse. And so my recommendation would be, um, you know, there are two key books that I think every Christian really needs to know and understand well. And if you understand them well, they will open up the whole of Scripture. And they're both kind of books of beginnings. Uh, We call our English Bible Genesis. If you were speaking to a Hebrew person and you asked them what the first book of the Bible is, they would say it's Barashit. And Barashit is a Hebrew word that we translate with three words in English, in the beginning. It just means beginning. Um, And so the book of beginnings is in Genesis. And in kernel forms, all of the great doctrines and the plans and the purposes of God are found in Genesis. The other key book that would be really useful for you to study would be Acts. Because if you can study and learn and apply Genesis and Acts. It will open the whole of Scripture to you. And so both of those books, verse by verse, I can't remember how many sermons I preached on Genesis. It was over 50. And uh, if you work your way through Genesis, it will open up the whole of Scripture to you. So my recommendation would be to do that. Again, you can go to searchthescriptures.org or go to the App Store and download it, and you have access to all that material. And learn your Bible. Start you know, putting down your Facebook and other good things and some of the TV shows you're watching. And invest some time in the Word of God. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener has a question about the Strange Fire Conference uh, John MacArthur hosted and whether you know anything about it, whether you believe it was accurate or off balance. No, I I think Dr. MacArthur was right on target. And um, he wrote a book in the 1970s that dealt with this subject when it came out. Oh, my, was it controversial because not only was the Pentecostal movement Uh, in play, but the charismatic movement had reached its height. And there is a distinction between Pentecostals and charismatics. Pentecostals go back to the uh, the start of um, the 20th century in the early 1900s. There was a revival of the Pentecostal movement, signs and wonders, so to speak, which they said were normative for today. The charismatic movement started actually in the Episcopal Church 
uh, through a couple in the 1960s, and it's a little bit different because it permeated, permeated mainline denominations. So you had Charismatics in the Episcopal Church and some Baptist churches and some Presbyterian churches, even in some Catholic churches. And so a um, little bit different, but the doctrine is similar. And so in response to that in the 1970s, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Charismatics, and he dealt with Pentecostal slash charismatic theology, and it made so many people mad. In fact, Moody Monthly, which at the time was a Christian publication that Moody Bible Institute put out, they had thousands of people cancel subscriptions because this had had such a profound impact, the charismatic movement. I don't think for good, but for bad. And it was a substitute to truth because people put experience over doctrine and over the soundness of the Bible. And so MacArthur has seen some of this same kind of theology raising its ugly head once again, where we have an experience-based theology. And now what is sad is evangelicals are being drawn into it. And they're being drawn into it through different ways, whether it's a series of books, Jesus Calling, You know, it's the same kind of thing, extra revelational, extra experience that is put on the same line as the Bible, whether it's a Beth Moore or whoever it is, there are some real dangers in the theology that they're propagating. But most evangelical Christians are so blind because they do not know their Bible. They lack discernment. And so he tried to highlight And I think rightly so, some of the issues, and he did a good job with it. And I'm sure you can get all those messages that he he did at his website. So good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Rick. Hi, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. I've got um, a question that's been um, on my mind for a while. Every morning when I spend time with the Lord in, in my devotionals, I have two devotionals that I um, prefer in starting my Bible reading. And back in August, um, twice in the same month, it referred to um, the story of when Jesus is on the road um, at a, at a, headed um, at, to Amasis. And he's on the road and he encounters two disciples. Um, and, and I've got my Life Application Bible, my RSV my NIV, and my King James all here. And when I refer to this one devotional, it refers to the two disciples as Cleopas and his wife. And when I go to John 19, 20, verse 25, I find that his wife was at the, Cleopas's wife was at the tomb. But all these years, I've always thought when he's talking about appearing to the two disciples uh, to the two disciples that it was two men is am i totally off or um could it be cleopas's wife and i'm i'm asking the question because this one particular devotional that i use has pretty much been bang on all along and these two days it's really caused me to question my understanding of who those two disciples were? It's a good question. Um, Certainly you're right from John 19 that Cleopas' wife was at, um, 
was at uh, the the tomb there on that Sunday morning. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus's mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And so that and that's really important information, because when you put a number of passages together, you discover that John, the apostle, the beloved apostle in Jesus were related, so to speak, that Mary's sister had John the apostle. And um, and so Jesus probably grew up with him or maybe he was older than him, but had a special affection for him, like an uncle might have for a niece or a nephew or like two cousins together. And um, and so the beloved disciple, uh, but to take Luke 24 and to read into that, those two individuals, Cleopas and his wife on the Emmaus Road, is what we would call eisegesis. Eisegesis is where you read into the text of Scripture something that is not specifically said. Exegesis is where you read out of the Scripture uh, what is specifically said. And so um, I think that is eisegesis. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things that had taken place. And it came about while they were uh, conversing and discussing, Jesus approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And one of them, verse 18 says, named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting? You don't know what's happening and so forth. And again, Cleopas's name, the other is not. Um, If I were to be guilty of eisegesis, I would rather certainly make these two men. In fact, church tradition, for whatever tradition is worth, because tradition can have authority, and there are some traditions that were held in the church for centuries that God later put his stamp of approval on as being true. So, for instance, in the book of Jude, for instance, there was some Jewish traditions that came down from generation to generation orally, and people said, well, this is what happened, this is what we've always believed, and and yet they weren't recorded in the Bible, so you don't know if they were accurate traditions or not. But then when God recorded the traditions under the New Covenant, then you say, oh, that was a tradition that was true. Well, tradition throughout the centuries has always held to this as being two men. And not to mention that um, in terms of, uh, you know, culturally speaking, it would be possible for a man to be with his wife, but certainly not with another woman. That would be totally out of play. Um, But again, the text doesn't tell us. And so to make it Cleopas and his wife is a stretch. It is eisegesis. Not to mention, um, he says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And there, the word for a man is not the word anthropos, which is the generic term that could refer to men and women. He uses the word arnir, which refers generically to a man over a woman. And then that eliminates the possibility that it's Cleopas and his wife. And so a simple reading of the Greek New Testament eliminates the possibility that it's a man and a woman by the word that it uses. You wouldn't pick that up in the English text, but you do pick it up in the, in the Greek New Testament. So um, again, 
here's a good rule of thumb. Uh, when you read the Bible, if you read a chapter, and sometimes you need to read it over and over and over and over again just to make sure that you're not missing any details. But if you read it and you can't on your own just out of the English text, because a good English text is going to basically say and ask, you know, what word in English today best represents this Greek, this Hebrew word? And if you if you don't see a reference to Cleopas and his wife, then you say, well, that's an interesting comment. I need to ask myself, is there another passage that maybe elucidates this text for me that would cause this commentator to to come to the conclusion that this is a man and a woman? And in this case, there's not because the Emmaus Road encounter is unique to Luke's gospel. So you can't go to some complimentary synoptic gospel and say, oh, yeah, it it was he and his wife. You can't even go to an oral tradition of the day because the oral traditions argue that it's two men. And then the Greek text argues that it's two men when he says in verse 25, oh, foolish men. And there again, it's not the word that's generic. It's referring to of the male sex. So, um, so I would say your commentary missed it on this point. And, and that's un, unfortunate. That's not to say the guy's not a good teacher or that he can't be trusted in other areas. I, I've said some things, especially in my younger years, that I wish I hadn't said, and I, and I, I just missed it. But the longer you study the Word of God, the more carefully you examine it, the better you become at exegeting it. And that's why it's always helpful, even as a pastor, to read not only the original, but to read other commentaries and to read historical commentaries. How did, um, how did someone in the fourth century like John Chrysostom understand who was a great exegete of the Word in the fourth century? an exegetical preacher. How did he understand the text? How did the reformers understand the text? How did the church fathers understand the text? The church fathers is the early church fathers and the later church fathers, but those are the generations that lived immediately after the death of the apostles. So they would have, they would have known the apostles. They would have known a lot of early church members and they would have understood how the early church and how the apostles would have commented on these things. And so when you go back and read these guys, it's never a man and his wife. It's always two men. And, and I think that's significant. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Very good. Our next listener um, says they were having a conversation with someone and explaining how the PCA church connects the relationship between infant baptism and Old Testament circumcision. This caller was somewhat confused and would like to know if you know how these two tie together and what uh, you have to say about uh, this uh, person having come to this conclusion from Scripture. Well, Francis Schaeffer, who I respect, uh, I mean, he's dead now. He's been dead for, I don't know, 30 years. But he was the one who I think most forcefully in the last century posited this argument, though it certainly was not unique to him because it goes back to centuries. Um, But nonetheless, he is the one that is often quoted. And here's the rationale behind it. They would say that baptism parallels circumcision in this way. The first generation of males who were circumcised were adult men. When God dictates to Abraham that he is to circumcise himself and all the men adult men in his home. And then God dictates 
that all of the children then born on the eighth day were to be circumcised. And so the rationale behind that is, well, the first generation of believers were real believers who were um, baptized. And then making a parallel, they say, well, then their infants would be baptized. And they argue that just as the first generation of adults were circumcised, then their infants, we should do the same with baptism. There's many problems with that. And by the way, you might want to go again to our Back to Basics series. And uh, 11 of the 20 handouts have been reproduced. And one of the handouts that's about 12 or 13 pages long is on the subject of baptism. And I go through all the verses in the Bible on baptism, and I go through all the arguments that people use to defend infant baptism. But again, the, the, the problem with making a parallel between the two is God in the Old Testament specifically said, I want you to circumcise your babies on the eighth day. He never specifically says that in reference to infant baptism. Number two, circumcision was for men only and for Jews only, whereas baptism was for Jew and Gentile alike, men and women alike, because the church is an international community. Number three, in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all men. You know, unfortunately, in the 1970s, people began to misconstrue the Great Commission, and they took that phrase, make disciples, as do discipleship, and that's not what it is saying. The Great Commission in Matthew um, 28 is in deference to the limited commission given earlier in Matthew's gospel, where he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, go only to the house of Israel. But now he broadens the commission. And so a few hundred years ago, we came up with the theological catchphrase, great commission to say that Jesus then affirmed because Israel had their opportunity. Jesus said, now the emphasis is not just go to the Jew, but to go to all nations, all peoples, make disciples. You could paraphrase it, make converts, baptize them, teach them. So the term make disciples is not do discipleship. It is make converts. How do you make converts? Through the preaching of the gospel. As in the parallel text, he underscores in Luke 24, go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That's how you make a convert. What do you do with a new convert? You baptize them. And then you don't leave them out there in the cold as new publicly identified believers. You equip them, you teach them in the things of the Lord. And so that's the pattern all the way through the book of Acts. People are saved, they are baptized. But in Acts, like in the Great Commission, baptism is conditioned on faith. Jesus said, believe and then be baptized in the Mark 16 account. Man's totally reversed it. We baptize little infants and later ask them to believe. And it's done great damage to the church because you meet these parents who say, well, we made this covenant with God and we baptize our little infant baby, believing that we would nurture this child and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Okay, well, great. And so then the problem is, is that very often in these churches, there's not really a launching point where people are given that opportunity to make the decision. Uh, they're, they're, they're just kind of brought up covenantally, and they, they just kind of drift into that decision, I suppose. Now, some would take issue with what I just said, but in practice, that is often what happens. 
And so churches that practice post-conversion baptism, kids will often say, well, I want to be baptized. And that's one of the functions of baptism. That's the function of most of the symbols that God gave in Scripture. Dad, what do those 12 stones mean stacked up there? And God said, when your kids ask that, you remind them, well, those 12 stones came from the middle of the Jordan River. And that was the day God stopped the rivers of the Jordan and allowed the people of Israel to go across on dry ground. And so you tell them the story and the significance of that symbol so that they will learn the lesson. And kids every week say, hey, look, I want to do that, Dad. And it gives a dad, a mom, a pastor a launching point to say, well, you can't just get baptized You need to first receive Christ. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, look water, what prevents me from being baptized? And conditionally, Philip the evangelist will say, you can only be baptized if you first believe. Now, some also read infant baptism into the household baptisms, so to speak. There are five that are listed in the New Testament, one in Corinthians, four in the Acts of the Apostles. In four of the five, it specifically says that everyone in the household either received the word or believed the word. And so to read infants into those texts is to be guilty of what we brought up in an earlier conversation today, what we call eisegesis. Exegesis reads out what God has said. Eisegesis reads into what he says. And so if four of the five household baptisms say that everyone specifically believed, why should we read infants into the text? And again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, Philip makes it conditional, and Jesus' order is extremely clear. Make disciples, then baptize them, then teach them. And so the um, history of the church has been, for the most part, consistent in that we've practiced believers baptism. Certainly there are denominations and groups that practice infant baptism, but again, they're really not even practicing baptism. There is a word for sprinkling in the New Testament, ratizzo, where you take a little handful of water, saying you sprinkle it, you find it scattered all the way through the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word baptizo is a transliterated word just comes directly in English as baptized. But while it may have religious significance in our day, it was not solely a religious word. If I lived in the first century and I was uh, someone who dyed cloth for a living as a fuller, I would take a piece of white cloth and I would immerse it into red dye if I wanted to make it red cloth. And to describe the immersion process, I would use the Greek word baptizo. It means to immerse. And only immersion can picture death, burial, and resurrection. And so immersion is our wedding band. Why do I wear a wedding band? To say I'm married and I'm not interested in any other woman. Now, the band didn't marry me. God did. The band is just a symbol. Baptism doesn't save you. Christ does. But baptism by immersion, because that's what the word means, pictures death, burial, and resurrection. What is the gospel? Don't tell me Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel, the articular use of it, with the word the, it is defined is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Why is that significant? Because the gospel is the power of God to save you. And so true baptism takes place after spirit baptism. When the Lord says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he's not talking about water there. He's talking about spirit baptism. But after you are baptized by the spirit, which happens the moment you believe in Christ, you're to be baptized by immersion in water as a symbol of that. Well, we're out of time. Glad you could join us. Sorry we didn't get to a lot of questions, but hopefully there's another day. God bless you. 